Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. I created Data Mesh Radio to be a resource for Data Mesh practitioners the world over. This is a weekly summary episode where I share a bit about the upcoming week's episodes and give you an extended summary for any interviews or panels that will be released during that week. It's designed to help you decide what episodes you might want to spend the full time to listen to, as interview episodes and panels are typically more than one hour long. In general, if you were running up against any challenges with Data Mesh, I'm here to help. I started a company around doing just that, Data Mesh Understanding. So get in touch if I can be of help. Check out our free community programs and things like that as well. Weekly episode summaries and programming notes for the week of December 24th, 2023. Happy holidays, everyone out there. Hopefully you're doing something fun and heading into the new year. Oh, this is actually my first time recording one of these in over a month. I, I recorded a bunch before I went and took a bit of time off ahead of the holidays, but I'm kind of back at it uh, heading into this next week. After a bit of feedback, uh, I think one of my big focuses in general, not just for Data Mesh Radio, but in general for 2024 we'll be writing comprehensive reports on specific topics in Data Mesh, such as access control. A big one that I'm doing a panel for in the near future is you know, MDM or Master Data Management, BI in Data Mesh, driving domain ownership, creating a actual modular platform and bringing you know, kind of that platform engineering perspective into data, uh, data product management versus ownership, et cetera. If you have topic ideas, or especially if you want to contribute to one of these reports, I'm going to have people submit like actual kind of write-ups, you know, two to three page write-ups of their view of X or their actual application of, you know, whatever the topic is. So if you want to contribute, or if you have topic ideas, as I said, but especially if you want to contribute, get in touch. Seriously, do it. I think these could really help people get over the idea of trying to do every aspect of data mesh perfectly and move forward when seeing the different approaches people are taking, but that they're still adding value, that they're still working, that, you know, there isn't one single right way. So with that, what's on tap for this week? On Monday, we have episode 280, Enabling Your Domains to Create Maintainable Data Products, an interview with Alexandra Dean. Uh, so Alexandra share her team's journey at Yencedia, which is an insurance company in Norway, um, but their journey in doing domain-driven data products. What they're doing isn't exactly data mesh. The domains don't control the actual sources or anything like that. It's built on top of their data warehouse. But I think it's an exceedingly helpful view of a few things. First, getting domains to actually own data. Second, not replacing what, what isn't broken, right? Their cloud data warehouse is doing great, so why should they replace it? Third, how to propagate data ownership into the domains with a small team. She's working with a small team that's enabling these domains to take up the ownership. So how is she doing that with actually a small team? Then fourth, bringing software engineering best practices to data and just how would you think about doing that? And finally, fifth, how to talk about data mesh or generally don't internally. Then on Friday, we have episode 281, which is a panel, Data Contracts and Data Mesh. This was led by JGP, or Jean-Georges Perrin, with Amy Regatta and Andrew Jones, who's the author of kind of the Data Contracts book. 
If you haven't been a super long time fan of Data Mesh Radio, you might not know how much data contracts is near and dear to my heart. We recently had on Ryan Collingwood, episode 278, but I've been on the data contracts and data testing in contracts kick since late 2021. And I'll say that was before pretty much anybody else. And I was one of the main drivers of its rise to importance kind of out there when it comes to content. I was putting multiple people on my own podcast and other podcasts and things like that. So I think data contracts is this as a panel is probably overdue. And I think this panel will help you get comfortable on where you can deliver value early and learn to iterate within your own organization. I think that plus Ryan's episode 278 will be a really great pairing together. Data contracts are not a simple switch to flip. I know I use that phrase all the time, but they will take time in your organization to develop and improve. And they aren't the point. Data contracts are about creating ways for people to actually trust and especially to rely on data. What are your mechanisms to provide people the peace of mind to use data? Data contracts is a great one for that. There's tons of great tidbits in this panel. I think you'll learn a lot and really advance what you're looking at. So with that, on to the extended summary for Alexandra's episode and the panel. Quick reminder that the panel extended summaries are quite long, so just kind of prepare for that one. Extended summary for episode 280, enabling your domains to create maintainable data products. An interview with Alexandra Deem, PhD. In this episode, I interviewed Alexandra, who's the head of cloud analytics and ML ops at Norwegian insurance company Yensidia. Yensidia's approach closely aligns with Data Mesh, but they are starting with a focus on consumer aligned data products as they have a well functioning data warehouse and are not looking to replace what isn't broken. So they're not really heading down that full data mesh path at the start. Alexandra started with a little about her background coming from academia into the commercial world and how that shaped her view of things. She was the first data scientist at a company, so before she could really do data science, she essentially had to work as a software engineer. That meant learning many good software engineering practices. When she moved to data, she thought, we should use those these practices here too. And then she also came across Jamak's post on Mark Fowler's site, and it all started to click. How could we bring these software practices into data? Specifically at Yensidia, Alexandra was brought in to lead a team of software engineers acting as an enablement team plus a platform team around Data Mesh. Their role is to focus on bringing these good software practices such as DevOps, automation testing, automation testing, et cetera, to the data business analysts to help them build these kind of data products off of the data warehouse. It has evolved to be more sophisticated when they really started to embrace data mesh, but the team is still about enabling people to build data products. Incedia already had embedded embedded analyst teams in many of their domains. So when Alexandra and team started to roll out the data mesh implementation, there were already a number of data-capable folks who understood the actual business aspects of the domains. That meant there wasn't the typical pushback on the domain actually owning their data products. It was more about enabling them to do so and build a maintainable and scalable product. The process of pair programming between her team 
of software engineers and the data domain experts means her team becomes more and more data fluent and learns more about each of the domains, while the domain learns how to write good software code. They specifically leverage a model of two of her team and two of the analysts in a data product creation team to provide enough information exchange, but not too much overhead. That intimate understanding of what has been created also helps her team to find reuse in other domains. They more deeply understand what has been built, both from a product standpoint and kind of feature standpoint, models, things like that, and can direct teams towards what's been built quickly. That speeds time to market as well for the new team. Lots of wins all around. When looking at the central enablement team strategy, Alexandra strongly believes in a minimum viable data product approach. Her team only has a handful of people, and they have 25 analyst teams to work with. The team has to focus on getting each analyst team to capable via the, the first data product, again, with only two analysts on the team and then letting those two analysts propagate the knowledge to the rest of their own teams, the rest of their own domains. Again, the central team would be too other uh, would be too overloaded otherwise. So again, the focus is on teaching the analyst teams how to build good data products and then moving on so they can teach everybody else and so again, you don't have that um having to enable every single person. You know, otherwise it's just not scalable or you have so many people in the central team that it becomes far harder to find these patterns and share information with each other. You know, it's a team of Alexandra and six other folks. The, domains, the domains have to deliver value themselves, so teaching them to do so and then moving on is a sustainable strategy. When communicating with the rest of the organization, Alexandra rarely uses the term data mesh. She points to data product and self-service platforms as things that resonate with people and helps. They help to communicate what she's actually focused on doing, generating value. Most people don't care that the way you are generating value is data mesh. It's simply a mechanism. Lean into that. You know, Scott note, lean is a bad pun here because she mentioned how helpful the lean startup is to focusing on value generation. One very interesting note Alexandra talked about was training the domains in reusing data. Historically, it's been very difficult to reuse data because you didn't have the information about how that information was created and it didn't really have a reliable source. Getting the spreadsheet from a colleague each month isn't that reliable, right? So you will likely need to train your domains on reuse, especially finding sources to reuse and how to see if something fits their purpose. That can be the producing team too, teaching them how to share what they've built to other parties that might want their data. Alexandra noted that most of the data products they are building use an existing clean and well-understood data source, the cloud data warehouse. They're leveraging a hub and spoke pattern from that warehouse for their products. People already know and trust the warehouse, so it made sense to them to start there. Essentially, everything ends up as a consumer-aligned data product, in a sense. Relatedly, for Alexandra and team, they don't see a need to adhere to every aspect of data mesh, especially at the start of their journey. She said, quote, I don't really see the point of having to destroy value before I should be able to generate new value. I can very happily just generate value on top of the value that I already have. They had some things that were working well already and breaking it all down to fit the 
the data mesh paradigm didn't make sense to them. However, she is aware of the additional challenges this can bring and made the conscious trade-off here. So Scott, note, this is an obvious data mesh anti-pattern because the upstream isn't directly from source systems. The teams building the data products don't control the source or their source-aligned data products. But if you don't have an existing bottleneck from your cloud data warehouse, why fix something that isn't broken? This may become a bigger challenge later. Jamak has written why not owning source data creates big, big challenges. But if they're willing to take the trade-off and understand those trade-offs, is it a bad approach? I don't necessarily think so in their case because the data warehouse is functioning well and it isn't a bottleneck. It's something to think about. And I wouldn't recommend others to go down this route unless they're in a very, very similar position. But is it something where you have to adhere to data mesh for the sake of adhering to data mesh? I don't think so. Alexander talked about how to really embrace a culture around minimum viable X in data. In data scientists, in data science, at least there is a good understanding of hypothesis testing. But even then, it's hard to embrace the necessary fast-fail model touted by things like the Lean Startup. Trying to understand how to hypothesis test value is also difficult, and people have historically seen the challenges in iterating on anything data-related. So there's a learning curve, but also generally a necessary cultural change to embrace hypothesis testing and fast fail around data. On advice to her past, you know, quote unquote, data mesh self, Alexandra gave a reasonably common response, circling back to an earlier point. Stop talking about data mesh, at least early in the process. Data mesh is a set of guiding principles, not quote unquote, the answer. You know, talk to people about changes to their ways of working and their target outcomes. Why are we taking on change? People hear data mesh and expect it to be some technology or technological approach. You can use the name when people ask what you're calling the approach, but selling it as doing data mesh doesn't help your business partners get it. It can actually hurt quite a bit. It becomes a much more tiresome approach to specifically focus on data mesh instead of the ways things change and what matters to them. Extended summary for episode 281, a panel, Data Contracts and Data Mesh, led by Jean-Georges Perrin with Amy Regatta and Andrew Jones. Quick reminder that the extended summaries for panels go through a lot of bullet points and are often quite long. This one is 23 total bullet points. So in this episode, guest host Jean-Georges Perrin, who's the, a data innovation consultant at Profit Optics, as well as the CIO of ABA Data, as well as the guest of episode 130 and a panelist in episode 227, he facilitated a discussion with Amy Regatta, who's a senior data product manager at Swiss Marketplace Group, as well as guest of episode 165, and Andrew Jones, who's a principal engineer and author of the book on data contracts, as well as guest of episode 29. As per usual, all guests were only reflecting their own views. The topic for this panel was all about data contracts and how do we go about getting them in place. Much of it was about the general concept, but some of it was specifically about how do we think about data contracts applying to data mesh? This was the first topic I really did a deep dive into in, in 2022 of data contracts. And 
we've evolved around data contracts, but it's def definitely still evolving. We're still early days. We still don't know how to do this all that well. And as per usual with these panels, I'm going to share my takeaways rather than trying to reflect the nuance of the panelist views individually. So I've got my top seven, and then I've got another 16 beyond that. Number one, data contracts are about trust and understanding. Trust that there is an owner and there are rules. There is a minder that knows this data matters. Trust that things aren't going to break, at least as often as many things in data have historically, and they will at least be told if it breaks. And understanding that what you're getting isn't perfect and there are rules but also limitations. It's no longer buyer beware. Consumers can understand what they should get and what are those limitations. You know, we can talk about understanding and documentation and all that as well, but a lot of times that's not in the contract itself. Number two, to do data products well, you almost certainly need some concept of a data contract. Otherwise, you were essentially just putting out a data asset and calling it a product. Products come with guarantees of some sort. Number three, data contracts are about ensuring better outputs with less effort for all parties. They're a quality assurance mechanism, but also a scaling mechanism. It's a printing press for data in a sense. Now you have reusability where you don't have to carve things in wood each time like you did before the printing press. You assemble the, the pre-made tiles and you have it say what, what you want, you know, like you would for, for printing, but it's more about arranging tiles than defining everything. It's not, you know, carving things from scratch, as in this analogy. Standardized aspects of contracts help both producers and consumers communicate about the aspects of a data product. Number four, like with anything related to data mesh, or really any good data practices, you can rule out data contracts over time. It's not some switch you, you flip and suddenly everything is covered by data contracts. Start small and find value. Start with one or two teams or one or two data products. Figure out how this can work in your organization and then scale from there. Number five, while many may see data contracts as additional overhead for data producers, it's quite often a safety mechanism for them. They hopefully at least don't want to break things for downstream consumers, but they often don't know exactly how their data is used or how a change might impact those people. Now we have a way for them to understand the impacts of their changes and easy mechanisms to get in touch with the users of their data to say, hey, this thing is changing, or can we talk about how we can change this appropriately? Far fewer emergency response tickets to data breakages, right? That's good for them. Number six, data contracts are very useful, potentially necessary, when we think about interoperability between data products in a larger context. A contract isn't only about what is in the specific data product, but how it relates to the rest of your data products, mesh or not. If you have interoperability standards or linking keys, those are important aspects to mention in a contract. And then number seven of my top takeaways, the last one, is to realize the vision of data mesh. We have to have technology agnostic approaches. There will be tons of vendors releasing their own versions and visions around data contracts and almost anything else. But at the end of the day, to actually be able to let teams have the freedom to develop their data products to best serve users, we need approaches over tools. And if you can't tell, I'm skeptical of tooling in the data contract space and any a lot of things related to data mesh. So here are some other important takeaways, many touching on similar points from, from different aspects. Number one, 
define your contracts where it's most likely to be updated. That's probably in the code for the data product, not having to go to some random separate tool to update everything. Number two, circling back to understanding, data contracts set expectations. Literally, they contain the expectations of what you should get with the data product. Expectation setting and boundaries are crucial to good human communication. Data contracts, there are aspects of them that are machine to machine, but they're also about communicating with humans. What, what should you expect to get? Number three, as always with data work, data contracts don't come for free. They take time for producers to engage with. Reduce the friction of dealing with contracts for producers, but also incentivize them to actually leverage data contracts. Otherwise, it'll just be a request, not a requirement, or you can put the requirement on them, but if you don't incentivize them to do it, it's, it's not going to go well. Number four, there are two different main approaches to data contracts when it comes to breaking changes to collaborate on changes before they happen, or to alert people a breaking change has occurred. It's better to be the first, but you might start with only the second capability, and that's okay, but you want to be moving towards that first of collaboration around this thing is going to change, so how do we make it change appropriately? Number five, potentially controversial. Using data contracts only as a blame mechanism when data breaks is missing the point. It can be a great collaboration tool for negotiating between producers and consumers. They're a great starting point for those negotiations. And then kind of an agreement tracking and enforcement mechanism after that. Number six, also potentially controversial. As I've personally noted many times before, contracts can be a double-edged sword. If you have consumers that never meet with producers and share information about what they're using the data for, that can lead to someone leveraging data they don't fully understand. Contracts can give people trust in the data products they discover without digging deep enough to actually do their work. It's a very nuanced and, and potentially hidden issue. It's definitely the trade-off between not having contracts and having this issue. You want to have the contracts, but it's also something you kind of have to look for and optimize for. Like, Number seven, like any product's practice, you will probably start out pretty raw and unsophisticated when doing data contracts. It's about getting to good, not starting there. Find value, find scale, find repeatability. Iterate to good. Here's your permission to suck when you start with data contracts. Number eight, data contracts can behave as great automated communication tools. Instead of trying to find all your users to update them about an upcoming change, it's automatic. You have a way to communicate with them. Without that automation, Amy said, data contracts are, quote, just a bit more paperwork. Number nine, data contract standards are important, but must be extensible. Don't expect a standard to solve all your problems or fit all your needs, especially as they are just emerging. Number 10, there are many choices you have to make for your organization around your data contract setup. Who owns the data contract is especially important. It should probably lie with the owner of the data, but if you don't have clear ownership of a data product or asset, then it's more likely that your data contract is a fact sheet about your data product or data asset and not an actual contract. That said, consumer-driven testing is great in software. Well, we have some aspect of that in data. This is a, a great back and forth uh, thing around testing versus contracts versus all of this. Like we want to have some consumer driven aspects of this stuff, but the contract of what you'll actually get versus what am I expecting to get 
I think those are two separate things. Number 11, circling back to communication to get producers to lean into contracts, look to have real conversations with producers about the challenges the organization is having with data and and how things are breaking and what, what challenges that creates. Work with them to find a better solution. They are typically software engineers. They like solving problems. Give them the KPIs and the OKRs that let them focus on data and solving things through data contracts. You can't just simply give them more work. You need prioritization to say that this matters. Number 12, data consumers need to be accountable to watching for changes to the data products they use. You need a good mechanism to alert them, but if they aren't paying attention and something breaks, that's on them. Everyone has accountabilities. Consumers aren't free to just, you know, kind of la 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 la. They have to be aware as well, and they have to be part of the conversation. They have to lean into this. Number 13, should you have security and privacy encoded in the data contract itself? I think it's early days there. It, it might live in the contract as the place of record or for the platform or not. And it's an interesting concept. I, I don't know there. I think it's something that's worth digging into. Number six or 14, potentially controversial. Should we try to create the contract automatically and have a human change and validate or the other way around? For me, probably human with a template works best for now. Automation would be great, but there's probably too much room for error. So you want to start from with the human first and then move towards, you know, some automated checking versus, you know, thinking, oh, I can just have it do automate and have somebody do a quick look over. That's it. That's <laughs> for me that that's problematic. Number 15, we want super clean implementations of something like data contracts, one standard contract across the organization for all data products. But it's just not realistic at the end of the day, especially early in your data contract journey. Every organization is messy in its own way, especially with stuff like multi-cloud and many platforms and things like that. This is no different. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could just do this simple, simple thing? Well, yes, it would be great, but it's not reality. And finally, number 16, how data quality plays into data contracts is a bit more complicated than I think most people think. There are quality standards, but checking if a data product actually complies with its quality SLAs and, and the standards is, is another interesting question that people are approaching differently, whether that quality enforcement is in the contract or not. I, I think just in wrapping up, a lot of this is, this is, again, this is evolving. We are figuring out how to do this. And if you want it to be perfect, when you start, you're going to have to wait for a while, but you can get to a lot of value and you can create a lot of value add conversations through contracts. So I've been, I've been, you know, banging the drum on, on data contracts since uh, Olivier Volwerich in like episode seven or so brought them up. And I, I think it's really, really important for us to understand how they can add value, but that they also aren't a, a silver bullet there to catch all solution. Hopefully it sounds like some awesome episodes for you coming up this week. As a reminder, feel free to get in touch if I might be useful in your data mesh journey, helping quite a few organizations and introducing people to each other, plus doing some roundtables. Check out datameshunderstanding.com for more information. I hope you have a great rest of your day and week. Now on to that fun, funky little outro music. Mm -hmm.